listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan here once again with Sky Sky. Sky Sky. The sky is beautiful outside right now. Yeah. Spring has finally come to Utah. Which is actually pretty terrifying because apparently we could get some severe flooding yeah. this year, is uh, what the rumor rumor mill is saying. Let's see if it's true. Yeah. We have had uh, record snowfall this year. I mean, like, since, since people have been recording inches of snow in Utah, this year we have had more than any other year, which is just crazy. So I think uh, Alta which is the big the big resort out here. They they have more that's a ski resort. But they have more snow than any other resort in North America this year. They've almost hit 900 inches of snow. It's incredible. It just blows my mind. It's incredible. I can't even fathom how much snow that is. But I saw this KSL report on the flooding in is it 1983 yeah so 82 and 83 was the last time that we got even close to this much snow and we've had quite a bit more this year than what they had then and it was state street right in salt lake yeah i remember watching it and interestingly enough they uh had a picture of people you know helping put sandbags and stuff it's crazy there was a young picture of my dad helping hey ah Pretty weird. He's doing that good part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's good. Exactly. Man, yeah, we actually, uh, there's uh, some folks in our church who are really involved in uh, what's what's called Southern Baptist uh, Disaster Relief, DR. Cool. But, uh, yeah, they're training on even uh, how to do, uh, I forget what they call it. I think they call it wet out or something like that, but it's basically how to help with flooding problems because they're anticipating that there could be some serious flooding. And apparently that will, that will occur if it gets too warm too fast and the snow starts melting off the mountain too rapidly. So we've got a beautiful like 75 degree day, which is not a great thing right now, interestingly yeah. enough. So anyways. we jump right into summer. Yeah. Yeah. We've got some friends who live even kind of close to some of the creeks that all that snow melt comes down from. So we're praying that that'll be all right. Yeah. We will see. We'll find out. Yeah. What you been up to, man? How, how, how's the week been? Week's been all right. Yeah. No, there's nothing to report. Nothing interesting to report. Just more reading. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Just reading away. Reading away. Yeah, and working and I want to buy a copy of your new book, though. Yeah, what that book is be- that? That beautiful red volume. Yes, Andreas Kostenberger. Yeah, biblical and- theology. I can't remember who the other author is. <laughs> Kostenberger and someone else. <laughs> yeah, sorry to someone one, else. I, I hear uh, Andreas is one of Ed's friends. Well, yeah. So we we have a, a brother. He's he's one of the uh, co-pastors here with me at uh, First Baptist Provo. Dr. Ed Romine. Yeah. And saying that someone is one of Ed's friends isn't really saying much at all because <laughs> Ed is friends with the whole world. So yeah, I guess that's true. That's <laughs> I mean, true. Yeah. Name a name a scholar or theologian out there who's not Ed's friend. Yeah. That would be easier than naming all the ones who are. Yeah. So. I, I, maybe I should leave his name out, but we were reading a book together and discussing it. And uh, I had a question about 
how he worded one of the sentences. And it's like, oh, I'll have to ask him. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get let back me, to let you. Let me give him a yeah, call. Yeah, let me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fun. Ed Romine. That's right. Doctor. Yes. Do- well, actually, his so his uh, scholarly name is Dr. E.G. Romine. Hmm. Yeah. That's what he's publishing under. Uh, his new book will soon yeah, to be new book. It'll be um, Do- Dr. E.G. Romine. Nice. So I think nice. that's better. That, yeah. that sounds, you know, it's a long lineage of of B.B. Warfield, C.S. Gotcha. Lewis. Oh, who are some of the others? <laughs> D.A. Carson. Yep. G.K. Beale. G.K. Beale. Mm-hmm. It's just what you do, right? If you want to be legit, yeah. you go by your initials. R.C. Sproul. R.C. I'm telling you, There's it's all bunch. of them, isn't it? There's a bunch. Yeah, it's just you what know, you do. You know who's one of my favorites that um, I have yet to mention? Who's that? David F. Wells. Oh, yeah. Probably one of my five favorite Christian authors. Yep. Gordon Conwell. <sighs> so good. Whatever happened to evangelical theology? Such a good book. Mm. Well, you'll have to mention him then. Yeah. Sometime. <laughs> He'll come up eventually. All right. Let's, uh, let's read from the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 11 on justification, which will be relevant to the discussion today. This is such a good statement. And uh, I'm not going to read all the scripture references, but I just want to reiterate that this, the source of this confession is the Bible. Um, This is not men creating doctrine. This is men articulating the doctrines of the apostles. Um, And I say apostles primarily because all the references I'm looking at here are New Testament references. But uh, yeah, I just always want to be clear on that. All right, Article 1. God freely justifies the persons whom he effectually calls. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting them and accepting them as righteous. This he does for Christ's sake alone, and not for anything wrought in them or done by them. The righteousness which is imputed to them, that is, reckoned to their account, is neither their faith, nor the act of believing, nor any other obedience to the gospel which they have rendered, but Christ's obedience alone. Christ's one obedience is twofold. His active obedience rendered to the entire divine law and his passive obedience rendered in his death. Those thus justified receive the rest, receive and rest by faith upon Christ's righteousness. In this faith they have, not of themselves, but as the gift of God. The faith which receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the sole means of justification. Yet, It is never alone in the person justified, but is invariably accompanied by all other saving graces. Nor is it a dead faith, for it works by love. By his obedience and death, Christ paid in full the debt of all those who are justified by the sacrifice of himself in his blood shedding on Calvary and his suffering on their behalf of the penalty they had incurred. He fully and absolutely satisfied all the claims which God's justice had had upon them. Yet their justification is altogether of free grace, 
Firstly, because Christ was the free gift of the Father to act on their behalf. Secondly, because Christ's obedience and his satisfying the demands of the law was freely accepted on their behalf. And thirdly, because nothing in them merited these mercies. Hence, God's exact justice and his rich grace are alike rendered glorious to the justification of sinners. From all eternity, God decreed to justify all the elect. And in the fullness of time, Christ died for their sins and rose again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until in due time, the Holy Spirit actually applies to them the benefits of Christ's person and work. God continues to forgive the sins of all the justified. They can never lose their justification. But they may, by reason of sin, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. In which case, until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg God's pardon, and renew their faith and repentance, God will not usually restore them, restore to them the light of his countenance. Believers in Old Testament times were justified in precisely the same way as New Testament believers. That was the full chapter. It's beautiful. It's good stuff. Lots of good scripture references as well. Um, if you want to ever check out, you know, the, the 1689 or the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is very similar, you can find those online and look at all those scripture references and uh, just see why Christians have articulated these truths the way they have. It's because they are pulling from the Bible what the doctrine of the apostles and prophets and uh, really the Holy Spirit <laughs> uh, has art- articulated. So... Anyways, let's get into it, shall we? Yeah. All right. We are looking at the Come Follow Me LDS Sunday School Curriculum for April 17th to the 23rd. Matthew 18 and Luke 10 are the two passages of Scripture that they are looking at in the Sunday School Curriculum for this week. Uh, Again, you don't need to be in the same week as us in real time. You can track along with, with this at any point. But uh, the subtitle that's given here is, What Shall I Do to Inherit Eternal Life? And then from the very beginning, we have uh, some particular LDS doctrine being inserted uh, because they provide a kind of a teacher's, you know, hey, this is something to help you in receiving your impressions so that you can teach your class better at the very top of the page. And it says, read Matthew 18 and Luke 10 and record your spiritual impressions. There's spiritual impressions again. Skylar, I'm going to ask you to comment on this right away just because you, you looked into this some and pretty interesting. But it says, as you receive impressions, you might ask as Elder Richard G. Scott suggested, quote, is there more I should know, end quote. And they encourage us to look in uh, the talk to acquire spiritual guidance. What what would you would you find on that? Yeah, particular so talk. This talk, the word impression was throughout it. It made me wonder. You know, is he our guy? Is he yeah. the guy that the spiritual has popularized guy. the spiritual impressions terminology? Um, I don't know that to be yeah. clear, but yeah. he definitely is popularizing it if he's not the, the source of it. So let me just, I, I wanted to read two quotes, but just going through some of the talk, it's the October 2009 General Conference. I'll link to it. It's about seeking personal inspiration. Um, and he asked the question, what are the principles upon which spiritual communication depends? He talks about the spiritual laws upon which inspiration and power are based. 
And he shares experiences that taught him a way to gain spiritual guidance and how he began to receive impressions as an extension of those principles. That, that, that to me is like the framing for the whole curriculum, even just right there. Mm-hmm. Here's one line uh, that is worth pointing out, showing once again the uh, self-centered nature of the epistemology being promoted here. Um, he says, The Lord will not force you to learn. You must exercise your agency to authorize the Spirit to teach you. We authorize the Spirit, mm. which is interesting because when we talk about, first off, the, the distinction between Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit, we've covered several times, but the Spirit is what authorizes yeah. right, uh, the Scripture yeah. for us. That's right. right? We're, we're receiving what the Spirit inspired mm-hmm. and authorizes. Um, but for Richard E. Scott in this talk, we're in the driver's seat. We authorize the Spirit by exercising our agency. Now, these two quotations I thought were worth reading from this talk. Of course, a general conference talk, for those who don't know. Whenever they cite a November or a um, May uh, ensign or Liahona, remember, it's the month after the general conference, so it's going to be based on that. Sometimes even just include all the talks. He says this, I am convinced that there is no simple formula or technique that would immediately allow you to master the ability to be guided by the voice of the Spirit. Our Father expects you to learn how to obtain that divine help by exercising faith in Him and His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Were you to receive inspired guidance just for the asking, you would become weak and ever more dependent on them. That's a negative. They know that essential personal growth will come as you struggle to learn how to be led by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So what's the ultimate goal is to not be dependent on them. And that's that's where, it's not that he teaches it in this talk, but recognizing the Spirit as kind of a force that you can depend on is key because he doesn't say Holy Ghost here because the Holy Ghost is a member of the Godhead. And once again, the goal is not to be dependent on them. Dependence is a bad thing. Um, he then, uh, this quote was also one that... Which is consistent with that. You know, we had a conversation with a, a BYU student um, a few weeks ago where he was using the analogy of uh, human a human father. You know, <laughs> we honor our human father not by growing in dependence on them, but by becoming more and more independent. That's what makes our father proud, right? So, uh, yeah, that I mean, that's the idea. And uh, biblical Christianity consistently teaches the exact opposite of that. Yep. You should have faith like a child, you know? So it's a uh, true, true Christianity is actually an increasing dependence upon God yeah. because we realize that he is distinct from us as uh, again, we've talked about the creator creation distinction over and over again, but as a, as a created being, we are made to thrive as we are dependent upon our creator God, not as we cause ourselves to, grow in independence. That's exactly mm-hmm. what Adam and Eve got wrong in the garden. They tried to be independent yeah. of God. So, Yeah, and, the, and that point about be as little children or the church being called little children yeah. is making that point. Think even the Lord's Prayer. We pray to Him for a daily bread. Mm-hmm. So it's not self-reliance. It's the reliance we have upon the triumph of God. 
Um, this is toward the end of the talk, and this is the last I got for, from Richard E. Scott. He says this, Have patience as you are perfecting your ability to be led by the Spirit. By careful practice, through the application of correct principles, and by being sensitive to the feelings that come, you will gain spiritual guidance. I bear witness that the Lord, through the Holy Ghost, can speak to your mind and heart. Sometimes the impressions are just general feelings. Sometimes the direction comes so clearly and so unmistakably that it can be written down like spiritual dictation. This talk, by the way, I, I didn't catch any scripture, really, meaning the Bible or anything like that. So there you go. Yeah, that, That's the model that's encouraged in the very heading of this um, lesson. Yep. I, I, we've even talked about how some of these things are present even in more charismatic circles within Christianity. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, we, we, would, we would advise against... Uh, ever thinking that the Spirit dictates God's words to us in any way apart from the Scripture. Um, that's the whole point of a closed canon. And so uh, even some evangelical Christians that get into uh, writing down words, thinking that they're from God, are on very dangerous grounds. Uh, so these are the things that we would advise against. Um, yep. Any attempt to divide dangerous. word and spirit yeah. leads to... Most of the heresies, yep. right? if yep. not all of them. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, here's what's so interesting is we, we would not say that the Spirit does not work subjectively sure. and give impressions sure. even. Um, you know, Tom Schreiner is a well-known theologian, and he's uh, what you call a, a cessationist, meaning that he doesn't believe that uh, the, uh, the more, you know, mir- miraculous gifts and whatnot have continued past apostolic age. But he uses even that very term that uh, that the spirit will still impress you at times to, you know, go and give an encouragement to a particular brother in Christ when they need it, and to to work in these more subjective ways, and that we should walk in dependence upon the spirit. Uh, but but there there is a fine line between that sort of subjective experience and beginning to lean into things like writing down words, believing that they are from God. Uh, when they're not from the inerrant word of God, so um, yeah, I mean, I just I don't want to be too stark in the in the divide there, sure, uh, because there are certainly subjective elements that we'd say are very important within our faith, but those things have to be grounded in the scriptures, and we need to be careful that we never begin to usurp the scriptures by becoming overly dependent upon subjective experience rather than the objective word of God, which we've talked about over and over again, for sure. And even the Holy Spirit, we would see, we would emphasize his reality apart from us mm-hmm. even if he's working within it's an alien force yeah. it's not yeah it's, it's not, not a force. power that we're it's tapping into yeah, with, with force is a bad word yeah, to use yeah. here but it, it yeah it it's it's still objective outside us yeah. god the holy spirit the third person the holy trinity working in us yes but he isn't us mm-hmm. and it's he's not waiting for our self our agency to to work. Yeah. He he just works. Yep. Yep. He's God. Yep. Not not us. That's good. 
Okay, so yeah, I just thought that was an interesting note on the because we see these spiritual impressions encouraged over and over again, and uh, so just one little one more, more source of it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we get into the actual passages that we're looking at here, and the first one that is covered in the uh, curriculum is Matthew eighteen twenty one to thirty five, which Matthew eighteen twenty one to thirty five is the parable of the unforgiving servant. So uh, it's the story that Jesus tells, the parable that he tells in the context of Peter coming and asking him, if my brother sins against me, then uh, should I forgive him? And how many times should I forgive him? Should I forgive him as many as seven times? Uh, That's significant, right? Because Peter thinks that he's being super spiritual by coming up to Jesus and saying, should I forgive him seven times? Because there's a lot recorded that there's a rabbinic tradition that essentially it's three times and you're out, kind of three strikes and you're out sort of a deal. So the many of the rabbis during this period would have taught that you are obligated to forgive your brother three times, but if he, if he sins against you more than that, then you, you're no longer obligated to forgive. So Peter is stepping it up saying, hey, how about seven times, Lord? Is that how many times I should forgive? And uh, Jesus says to him, um, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then he goes on to tell the story about the parable about this uh, this wealthy uh, this wealthy employer essentially who had this servant who owed him a great debt ten thousand talents in fact and uh, of course this servant could not pay the debt so the master uh, orders him to be sold and his wife and children and all he has to be sold as well in order that the payment might be made, might be made, which 10,000 talents, by the way, was such an astronomical amount that even selling yourself into slavery would not have been able to pay for it. Um, so the idea is just this tremendous debt. And so the, the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And then the master chose to show pity and released the servant and forgave him all of the debt. This just massive amount of debt. And then that same servant goes out. He finds one of his fellow servants who owed him just 100 denarii, which is a very small amount, very, very small, minuscule in comparison to how much uh, he owed to his master. And instead of showing that man the same grace and forgiveness, he seizes him, begins to choke him, and uh, demands that he pays what he owes. And so the uh, fellow servant falls down, pleads with him, have patience on me and I will pay you. And this guy refuses and puts him in prison until he pays the debt. Uh, so the fellow servant, uh, servants saw what had taken place. They were distressed. They go and report to the master everything that had taken place. And the master summons the guy and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until the day he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Okay, so that's the story that's going on here in Matthew 18, 31 to 35. The subtitle in the LDS curriculum is we must forgive others if we are to receive forgiveness from the Lord. And then in the classroom to do this exercise where they ask questions like, who does the king represent? Uh, Who does the unmerciful servant represent? Who does the fellow servant represent? What do the debts represent? And uh, then class members are to share what messages the parable has told them personally through spiritual impressions, I guess, throughout the week as they've been studying. And, uh, And so... 
the idea is just pretty simply put, uh, if you want to receive forgiveness from the Lord, you must forgive others. All right. Take it and run with it, Skylar. Okay. This, this talk, um, which is in the additional resources as well, um, is Jeffrey R. Holland's Be Therefore Perfect Eventually. We interacted with it a little bit on our Beatitudes episode, but it, it's probably worth dealing with a little bit more detail. Let me, let me quote uh, a little bit from this talk. Um, once again, some of the context, right? He says, I know we are his spiritual sons and daughters with divine potential to become as he is. And um, he talks about, for him, the paradox of how far we fall short but this uh, potential to become better. I hope we could pursue steady improvement, personal improvement, without demolishing our self-esteem. He's really worried about our self-esteem in here and warns against even toxic perfectionism. We covered some of the ironies with that. Yep. Um, he cites Nelson's um, mortality. In here, mortality perfection is still pending. And then the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, he says he intended it to be a tribute to who and what God uh, the eternal father is and what we can achieve with him in eternity. Okay. So that being said, I wanted to read, uh, the sections around what they quote. So of course, what they quote in the additional resources focuses on, um, the, even the, the debt amount, right? Right. Um, well, let's read around it a little bit. He says, I hasten to say that focusing on the fathers and the sons, keep in mind two different beings and persons, two different gods, on the fathers and the sons' achievements rather than our failures does not give us one ounce of justification, interesting word choice, for undisciplined lives or dumbing down our standards. No, from the beginning, the gospel has been for the perfecting of the saints mm -hmm. till we come unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I talk about butchering Ephesians. I'm, uh, he says, I am simply suggesting that at least one purpose of a scripture or a commandment can be to remind us just how magnificent the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ really is, inspiring in us greater love and admiration for him and a greater desire to be like him. And then he cites, Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, Roni pleads. Love God with all your might, mind, and strength. Then, by his grace, you may be perfect in Christ. This is the Moroni 10.32 one, with the if-then conditionals we've covered more than once. Our only hope, Holland keeping, you know, going, our only hope for true perfection is in receiving it as a gift from heaven. We can't earn it. Mm -hmm. After citing Moroni 10.32, Thus, the grace of Christ offers us not only salvation from sorrow and sin and death, but also salvation from our own persistent self-criticism. Mm -hmm. He then goes on to tell this parable. Now, reading right after it, I think, I think it's useful to point out that wording, because right, if you just take out that gift language without the full context, it can sound correctish. Yeah. But that's why you have to pay attention to the context of, you know, what he's saying. Mm. So after he goes through that parable, he says this, Jesus uses an unfathomable measurement here because his atonement is an unfathomable gift given at an incomprehensible cost. 
Okay. That, it there, seems... There, to, there's your flowery language. There's the flowery right. word salad yeah. where it can sound so... I, I love Jesus Try, so trying much. To make it's it sound unfathomable. more amazing right. than it actually is. It's like it's yeah. like trying to describe a Ford Pinto using the specs from a Lamborghini. Right. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> mean, is yeah. it a Pinto or a Lamborghini? Yeah, like, right. You're going to tell when you... Stop looking at the spec sheet and turn your eyes on the car itself. Right. Especially when just earlier before the parable, he's so quick to point out. Now, don't think we're lowering the standards. Don't think yeah. that grace. I mean, he. they see the scandal of the cross. Yeah. Whether they would put it in that way or not. Mm-hmm. And they quickly avoid it. Anytime they use grace language, look at the footnote and look around it. They will always say, but. Yeah. They will always put the if-then conditional that's even in the Moroni verse he cites. Mm-hmm. So, and we're going to see this here. Once again, always in the context of becoming gods yourselves, even if they don't put it that bluntly anymore. So he'll say this. That, it seems to me, is at least part of the meaning. See, not the full meaning, that, that flowery language. That's at least part of the meaning yep. behind Jesus' charge to be perfect. We may not be able to demonstrate yet the 10,000 talent perfection the Father and the Son have achieved. Mm-hmm. The Father and the Son achieved this. Yep. But it is not too much for them to ask us to be a little more godlike in little things that we speak and act, love and forgive, repent and improve at least at the hundred pence level of perfection, which it is clearly within our ability to do so. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to, for the sake of completeness, in his testimony, he says, I testify of that grand destiny made available to us by the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself continued from grace to grace until in his immortality he received a perfect fullness of celestial glory. Citing, of course, D&C 93 where the word progressed to the station he's at. Yeah. It's so fascinating because, uh, again, we just see that it totally misses the point of the parable. It it takes the parable and it kind of draws out different elements of it to work it right into the LDS worldview. Um, But the the point is, uh, is that's being made at least in that talk, uh, is that... (laughs) Basically, we're supposed to be in debtor's prison until yeah. we get ten thousand talents, and then and then we've kind of earned our way in the same way that the mm-hmm. Father and Jesus have, and so we can share a little bit once we get there. But again, the idea is you will be locked in debtor's prison until you've earned it for yourself. That's just the way it is. But then they'll say other things that are like, "No, you get released from debtor's prison," and so there's just this, this consistent internal inconsistencies and contradictions that are going on within mm-hmm. the LDS faith where it's like at one, at one point you're getting relieved of debt. And then at another point you've got to earn it to be like the father and be worth 10,000 talents yourself. And so it really is like, which one is it? Can, can you have your cake and eat it too? Like I, I'm, you know, it's just, yes, it's so difficult to deal with it because is. it is internally inconsistent over mm-hmm. and over again. But when pushed, where are they going to land? And we've seen this in personal conversations on the street in different contexts, right? They're going to say, yeah, grace and works. But if you push them yeah. and say, you got to pick the scandal of the cross or the cross was necessary maybe for Jesus's own exaltation, but 
not for yours. Yep. Right. Yep. And they're going to lean into works. They're going to lean into the becoming, the potential, the agency, all of that. Yep. That's where they're going to push. So where it says in the manual, right, we must forgive others if we are to receive forgiveness from the Lord. We emphasize while we were yet sinners. Yep. Right. Uh, it, it, it's we, we say having been forgiven, we should forgive. Mm-hmm. We emphasize the indicative and then the imperative out yeah. of love. Yeah. So, you know, how, how should this kind of parable be applied? Should it be applied to, well, avoid perfectionism, but improve and constantly do better, and this is within your grasp and exercise your agency? No. It's that God's forgiveness is scandalous, and we should also be scandalous in how we forgive. And this is why, you know, it, it's <laughs> the church has always debated on how to discipline, but there's never been a sinner beyond forgiveness in, in terms of the, what the church has done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it, right. Even, even apostasy, whatever, right. There's no sin beyond the pale in church history. Right. Yep. Uh, I mean, Augustine is great on this, but this is just such a forceful expression of how Christians should live that Christian living rather than insisting on rights should be a continual dispensing of the mercy and forgiveness that we have received. That's right. I mean, that's that's the application. Yep. The idea is God has poured his grace into us such that we're overflowing with grace and mercy towards others. Uh, so you do have verse 35, you know, which I know is where they're drawing the idea. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. In other words, he'll throw you into debtor's prison if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So I think what we see there is that Jesus, as always, is aiming at the heart. But again, remember the context. Who is he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to Peter in particular. And he's saying, this is what Christian living looks like. And the emphasis is placed on remember how much you have been forgiven. Now, this is a a fascinating story because we just read this account in a children's storybook Bible with my kids. And my, my oldest daughter is getting old enough that she's starting to ask really good questions, which is exciting. So we read this account, and then she asks, she asks, Daddy, she says, I have a question. She says, if, um, if the teaching is that you're supposed to forgive essentially infinitely, then why didn't the master forgive the servant again for his wrong that he did? Why, why did he choose not to forgive at the very end of, of the story? I'm like, hmm. That's a great question. You know, like I love the way that this is being processed. And uh, what I told my daughter is we always have to interpret the parables within the meaning that's intended to be con- conveyed. And what Jesus is is saying is is uh, this is the the way that one who has been objectively forgiven by God uh, overflows into forgiveness of others. And somebody who does not, forgiven this way is showing them to not be showing themselves to not be truly a disciple of Christ. And one really important element of forgiveness then is that forgiveness can only truly come from a changed heart. That's the whole point that Jesus is making. If you don't have a changed heart, then uh, you're not going to forgive this way. If you do have a changed heart, you must, and you will forgive this way. And so this is teaching that's given to the disciples. And so even we, in our understanding of salvation, would say that justification comes after faith and repentance. 
uh, now that faith and repentance is, I mean, it's all going to happen in the same split second of time in the human heart. But if we were logically pound these things out, we would say that God sends his spirit who regenerates us, enables us to uh, respond to the gospel because of that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We respond in repentance and faith, which means that we turn from our sins and we trust in Christ. And after we trust in Christ, we are justified. And after we are justified, we are changed. So let me just read that section again from the 1689 that I started started us off with. The faith which receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the sole means of justification. You're not justified by any works that you do. It's, it's a faith that's resting on Christ and his righteousness alone. Yet it is never alone in the person justified, but is invariably accompanied with all other saving graces. Nor is it a dead faith, for it works by love. So what's the, what's the important note there? The gospel... As you trust Christ, it transforms you. It does change you, and it causes you to become a person of love because you are responding to the love that has been poured out into your heart in Christ Jesus, which then, of course, enables you to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Why? Because you realize, I've been forgiven so much, right? I've been given so much. Uh, how could I not forgive others? So yeah. it's just so critical to understand when Jesus is teaching his disciples versus when he's talking to unbelievers, right? Exactly. And uh, just to make sure, clarify, maybe I didn't finish the verse because I was assuming Christians would fill it in. Yeah. But for LDS listeners, right, it's not that, oh, someone's trying to forgive, so God's going to forgive them. Yeah. No, Paul's point is literally the opposite in Romans 5, right? While we were yet sinners, God right. died for us. And that's God's love. That's the scandal of the cross. Yep. Like, why is he not ashamed? Why is there something to be ashamed of Ashamed of in the, in the gospel? Mm-hmm. Because we have to admit we cannot do it. That's right. We are unable. And yet God, who is able, forgives people who absolutely do not deserve it and never did and never will. But based on that change, right, that um, I really like how... Uh, one scholar puts it, if forgiveness does not affect change, it is not experienced. Yeah. We talk about Christ's forgiveness. Yep. He's going to save us in our sin, but then he saves us from our sin. And that transformed heart should reflect the forgiveness and the charity and the grace that we were shown. Yep, yep. Uh, but, uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Now to add yes, to that, please. and just to clarify, even on my, my daughter's little question. yes. Uh, and the point of this parable is God does not forgive people who are not repentant. Right. God does not forgive people who do not have changed hearts. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does judge them. And so that is that is the point here is this right. man this man had never received the gospel. Yeah. Uh, that's why he went and demanded of the other servant because he didn't receive it into his heart. Um, it's almost like he he wanted the benefits, right? Uh, without, without having the yep. reality, he saw it as a mechanism for yeah. his own self fulfillment. Maybe exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and one thing too, even in the Holland thing, he'll say, even in what they included, right? That you know, um, it's a story about us, the fallen human family, fallen, interesting, uh, mortal debtors, transgressors, prisoners, all, and yet, like the emphasis really isn't on the debt of sin, really. You know, that like this number is really about 
our sins before a holy God. Yeah. And God sending, giving his son anyway. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, you're right. It's forgiveness takes, is rooted in a seriousness of sin that prevents the errors that can come the, on the other side of just this idea of actually cheap grace, not actual cheap grace. Like God, you know, God is not giving cheap grace, but like giving his only son. I think that's, uh, I don't know, the most costly thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one man who didn't deserve it. Uh, but there is an error on the other side in terms of the applied life, right? Mm-hmm. Of, uh, I can say this from family stories, um, where it was, you have to forgive and yet there was never responsibility for real sin yeah. uh, in someone who deeply hurt someone close to me. Yep. Um, that's, that's not what's being communicated either. Yeah, that's right. There's a really good book um, that I would recommend if anybody wants to read more on forgiveness. It's called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Braun. And uh, we, we can add it to the show notes. But yeah, yeah I mean, if you just want to consider a full kind of biblical theology of forgiveness. That book is the book for you. It's so good. All right, let's move on to Luke 10. Okay, so Luke 10, 25 to 37 is the famous passage of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, we all know that passage more than likely, but just for a quick update on what's going on there, the, uh, the story or the parable itself is a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was known as a really dangerous road, fell among Robbers, robbers were frequently on that road. They stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So you got this guy who's about to die on the side of the road, who's been stripped and robbed, and is left naked and uh, is yeah near to death. And this uh, this person passes by, and it happens to be a priest, right? The good religious guy. Uh, surely he's going to help. Nope, he passes by on the other side. And then a Levite, who also would have been a good religious worker, comes by, sees him, and passes by on the other side, has no compassion. And then Jesus introduces a Samaritan as the hero of the story, which Jews generally hated Samaritans, saw them as basically half-breeds. They weren't pure um, in uh, really in either their religious practice oftentimes or in uh in their bloodline so a samaritan comes in jesus makes him the hero he sees this man he has compassion on him he's moved to help him he bends down binds up his wounds pours on oil and wine and then uh, sets him on his own animal and brings him to an inn takes care of him makes sure that there's plenty of money given for him to stay there as long as he needs and says to the innkeeper if he still needs to be here and I didn't give you enough money. Keep him here and I'll repay you as soon as I come back. So just this immense, overwhelming compassion and care. And the whole point here is, uh, is here's what it means to be a good neighbor. And so Jesus uh, finished by asking, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And uh, the man who he's talking to says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Okay, so here is the subtitle on this one. To obtain eternal life, we must love God and our neighbors. Let me repeat that again. To obtain eternal life. Here here come more conditional statements. If you want to obtain eternal life, you must love God and your neighbors in in the Sundays or sorry in the seminary manual. This is how they put it. Just to since it's it says it explicitly. 
a parable. It says, the Savior taught that in order to inherit eternal life, we need to love God with all our hearts and love neighbor as ourselves. Yeah, to, to which I just ask, how do you know if you've done enough? How do you know if you're, you loved God enough? How do you know if you love your neighbor enough to obtain eternal life? Pretty hopeless. Yeah. And, and just even the, the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do you do to inherit anything? Yeah, we'll get there. That is Sorry. critical. Yeah, jump the gun here. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then the uh, class exercise is to invite the class to pretend that they are investigating a case of assault and robbery on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, and they're supposed to act all this out and play it out themselves. It says, make sure the discussion inspires class members to be like the Good Samaritan and the innkeeper and avoid being like the priest and the Levite. So the whole emphasis, again, is look at this as an example. How is this going to inspire you to be the person that you need to be in order to inherit eternal life? And then the, the last little bit here says, how does this parable of the Good Samaritan answer the questions asked of Jesus in Luke 10, 25 to 29? Invite class members to talk about times when they felt like the certain man who needed help desperately. How did that help come? How can we as ward members work together to help others like the Good Samaritan and the innkeeper did? I want you to see how horizontal their religion is. None of this is about the interaction between God and man. This is all about how do we become the help to one another. Exactly, That is exactly the opposite, again, of what the parable is getting at. Jesus is not trying to focus these people's attention on the horizontal relationship with others that is going to be the means by which they earn their way into eternal life. He's trying to reorient them to realize that there is a problem with the vertical relationship between them and God that has to be dealt with. Let me show you what I'm talking about, because this question that they ask is a really good question. How does the parable of the Good Samaritan answer the questions asked by Jesus in Luke 10, 25 to 29? Well, let's read Luke 10, 25 to 29 and see what the context of this parable actually is. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Okay, we've already started off on the wrong foot. Is this lawyer's heart right or wrong? From the very beginning, he's not seeking to submit himself to Jesus and learn from him. He's trying to put Jesus to the test. So we see that this lawyer has, has wicked ambitions. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus is doing something brilliantly here. And this is what every person ought to do. He is using the law to try to bring this lawyer under conviction for his own sin. That's the purpose of the law. It's not to be the means by which we see that we can gain eternal life. It's to be the means by which we see we cannot gain eternal life on our own, and therefore we need God to deal with our sin because we see how far we fall short. That's what Jesus is doing here. You tell me what's in the law. How do you gain eternal life? And uh, he answered, this is the law you're saying, well, you shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That was a common way of summing up the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments being love the Lord your God, the last six commandments being love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Okay, how are you supposed to respond to that? Are you supposed to respond to that saying, oh, okay, I'm going to take that very literally, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to live. And I, I now realize Jesus says the only way I can have eternal life is if I obey all of the law and, uh, I, and do it perfectly. So let me go try to do it perfectly. 
That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is getting at. Can we please see that? Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live, because he wants the lawyer to see it's impossible. You're not doing it. So you're going to die because you're not doing it perfectly. You must abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is Deuteronomy 28. Go read Deuteronomy 28, and, and you'll see the blessings and the curses that come and it is very clear in Deuteronomy 28, you either obey it all perfectly or you get the curses instead of the blessing. This lawyer would have known that, by the way. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. Now look at the next line in verse 29. But he, so he hears Jesus, he should be under conviction for his sin. He should cry out to Jesus, Jesus, I can't, help me, I can't do it. But what does he do? He does exactly what sinful, self-righteous people do. But he, desiring to justify himself, he doesn't want his justification in Jesus. He wants to be able to justify himself. So what does he do? He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So you see what he's doing here. He's trying to find loopholes to the law. He's trying to essentially make the law less demanding so that he can consider himself to be righteous according to not God's standards, but according to the standards that he wants to create. And so he's trying to justify himself. That's why he asks, who is my neighbor? Because he wants Jesus to tell him, well, your neighbor is your fellow Jew. Uh, and he, and in which case he could say, well, I do what I'm supposed to do with my fellow Jews. At least I do it to the best of my abilities. So that must be good enough. And then Jesus tells this radical story about a Samaritan being the hero of the story and the good Jews being the antagonist within the story, doing what is wrong. And he says, obedience to the law, this is essentially what Jesus is getting at, obedience to the law is far more radical than you even think. And so you're not going to be able to justify yourself. This is a story meant to bring conviction upon the self-righteous person who thinks that they can find justification on their own. Uh, this is a story that is meant to make us cry out to Jesus for salvation, realizing that he is ultimately our only hope. Uh, can, can he save us? Uh, this is a story ultimately about Jesus being the perfect neighbor um, who, who became even bloody himself for the justification of his, his people, who has served us to the fullest and absolute and perfect extent. Uh, this is a, a parable meant to turn that lawyer's eyes away from himself and onto Jesus. And so I hope you can see just how messed up it is when you take this and you say, to, eternal, to, to obtain eternal life, we must love God and our neighbors. That's, that's, that is putting the law back onto yourself. And that does mean that according to the standards of Scripture, you've got to do it perfectly if that's how you're going to get eternal life. Uh, what does the Bible say about how we get eternal life very clearly? Uh, yeah, John 3.16. It's a gracious gift. Right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but instead have eternal life. If you want eternal life, my friend, it's not going to be from loving God and your neighbor to your fullest extent. It's going to be from realizing what Skyler already quoted. God first loved us. Um, and we, we, we relish in that and we, we cry out to God and we say, you, you save us. Who, who can save me from this body of death? I'm not perfect. Uh, praise God. The answer to that is Jesus. Yeah. Anything else to add there? Well, in, so you're right. It's all horizontal and 
without dealing with the vertical, which ironically is the main point of this parable. Yep. And um, we don't have time to get into this in detail at all, but I just want to point out that there's going to be people like Blake Osler out there who are going to use the new perspective on Paul for those who know what that is, which does the same thing. Um, and just remember, sometimes context explains a passage. Sometimes context is used to get away from it. Similarly, sometimes scholarship helps deepen our understanding of a passage. Sometimes it's used as a means of sounding smart and getting away from the obvious. Keep in mind, everybody, the, the teacher, Jesus, and the Samaritan are all monotheists who see the word of God as the Old Testament, right? Even if they agree on some of the canon. So <laughs> there's that. So Blake Osler using stuff like this to focus on horizontal and make it a social gospel Mormon yep. style is, is yeah. wrong. Also, I just want to point out as well that like the, the, there is a horizontal axis that is being challenged here, but because they don't see the vertical, they're missing it. It would be one thing if um, Jesus was saying, you know, once again, the Samaritan, uh, the dynamic with Samaritans and the hatred, right, of Jews and Samaritans at this time is being challenged. And notice how it is. It would be one thing for him to say, you should show grace and mercy to Samaritans. But who's he supposed to identify as? As your enemy. You're supposed to identify as your enemy. That's totally different. <laughs> That's totally different. Imagine in a war making this same point. And, and by the way, uh, this, you know, this is a Christological point. Because Jesus identifies with us in our broken humanity. If, if this lawyer can't see that point, even with Samaritans, how is he going to get it for even the whole world, as Isaiah prophesied, the gospel would go to? Yeah. If he can't even get it within the covenant, <laughs> right, within Israel, how is he supposed to see the really worldwide implications of God having become man. And, you know, while we were yet sinners, God died. Mm -hmm. Christ died for us, I should say. Yeah. The, the key line in that parable really is the lawyer, that line saying, and he seeking to justify himself. Yeah. I mean, that's the key line um, <laughs> in the whole thing. And, uh, um, yeah, the, that that shows us that the whole point was that he should have he should have trusted Jesus um, for his salvation in that moment. Yeah, but instead he chose to try to justify himself by his own performance, but by trying to make the law less than than it was. And when when he says, "Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man?" He won't even say the word Samaritan. Mm -hmm. He just says the one who showed the one who showed him mercy. Yep. So it, anyway, so once again, we're not saying there's not horizontal aspects that need to be challenged. Oh, absolutely. But they're not primary. Yep. They're secondary. Yep. And if you miss the primary, you're going to miss the point of the secondary. Yep. Yep. Ephesians 2, another good place for that for those yep. who want to read it. That's right. Okay. Um, and then the last one is the story of Mary and Martha, Luke 10, 38 to 42. And uh, this one is, is 
a very, very well-known story. Of course, uh, Martha is busy serving in the home. Mary gets really upset at Martha because, uh, or Martha gets really upset at Mary saying, oh, I'm doing all the work. And Mary's just sitting on her bum over there listening to the the teachings of Jesus. And, uh, and so Martha thinks that she's, of course, in the right. She says, Jesus, you need to rebuke Mary because she needs to come and help me. Look at me. I'm doing all the work. And uh, um, Jesus says, no, no, no. Uh, Mary has chosen the better portion. And so uh, we have in uh, the subtitle here in the Come Follow Me curriculum, we choose, quote, that good part, end quote, by making daily choices that lead to eternal life. Again, we see that you're earning your eternal life yeah, the choices through your daily it. choices. Yep. So, so how do you earn, how do you get to eternal life? You choose that good part over and over and over again. And they say, how can we know what things in our own lives deserve more time and attention? And then there's a, a talk given by Dallin Oaks that uh, I don't know if you want to make any comments on the Oaks talk. It's, it's just a practical talk of. How to you do know, your finances just because right something and, is good, yeah, yeah. Make sure you choose the best, and you know, it's just pragmatism. Yeah, it, it's funny. The, the lesson starts with Richard G. Scott's spiritualism. It ends with Dallin Oaks's pragmatism, and of course, those combined, as they are in this lesson, form the foundation of the false American gospel. Go watch the documentary American Gospel. Yeah, um, that we deal with uh, even with uh, groups that are not LDS. Yep. Uh, but there's not a lot said on this last section overall, um, but it is a beautiful continuation of all that the Gospels are getting at, which is this encouragement to not rely on your works and to think that you are impressive, but to sit with Jesus, you know, just be in him, uh, rest in him. Uh, Mar- Mary's choosing of the better portion uh, was not that she chose a better work to do. The yeah. point is that she didn't do the work. She just sat at Jesus' feet. He's, and was, she's the one not she doing was, anything. She was spiritually <laughs> fed by him. Right. Exactly. She's receiving the gift. Yep. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so, I mean, what what a just incredible, you know, again, uh, observation to be made all throughout that there's this teaching of if you want eternal, if you want eternal life, you better earn it yourself. Yeah. And the text is just teaching the opposite of that. For sure. Over and over again. I mean, this is the at the very beginning of the lesson, the invite sharing section. Having just mentioned all those three, right? These chapters contain many examples of gospel teachings. They frame these three sections as gospel teachings that are different from what the world teaches us. And I want to say, everywhere the LDS are leaning into their theology... It's exactly what the world teaches. Do good, get good. For you know what I'm saying? Yep. Quid pro quo. Maybe be extra nice, be more nice than the usual, but ultimately people get what they deserve. Yep. Uh, perhaps class members could share some examples they found in their reading this week. How does the Lord bless us when we apply his teachings? See, the blessing follows the obedience, just like it says in the DNC. It, I mean, yeah. Yep. There, there's no gospel law distinction at all. Yeah. And they only focus on the moral teachings and not on the actual gospel. Yep. 
Just a That's gift right. from God. You're saved by grace alone. It's amazing. Yeah. It is. <laughs> where, where is eternal life? It's in Christ. Believe in me. That's right. Not work and participate with me. Believe in me. That's good. Any last words? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I think it, it, it's interesting to me. So in the forgiveness section of, was it, was it in the individuals and families as well? Uh, in the yeah, I believe so. In the seminary manual, they go through examples of forgiveness, and one of them is one that caught our attention: uh, Corey Ten Boom, yeah, um, who Dutch Reformed, um, sister in Christ. Her book, The Hiding Place, is an incredible book mm. of a story. She was part of the Dutch underground trying to save Jews from the Nazis, and she ended up in a concentration camp with her sister. Um, I don't want to give away the book for those who want to listen or read to it, read the book. Um, but it, I mean, it's it's got reformed theology all throughout it. Uh, very, it is a Christian book. It is based on Christian theology, not LDS theology. And it made me think: um, Why did they pick these examples? Because if you're talking about forgiveness and examples of it. Um, I think the first place that would come to my mind, even with an LDS, I mean, this is one that used to be in the missionary library, would be The Miracle of Forgiveness by Spencer W. Kimball. And, of course, this is a little personal for me because in the chapter on good examples toward the end of the book, in fact, not the last chapter, had my grandmother's story of forgiveness. And yet none of those examples were used. And I just think there is a, definitely a move away from even the LDSism as represented in the 70s by Spencer W. Kimball. Yeah. Not that he's alone in that. And uh, it's, it's interesting how they do it, right? They don't just say, hey, we changed our mind. We're moving away from it. We're going to pick other examples. Um, it's always stop talking about it, move on, hope people forget. Mm-hmm. And uh, the de-emphasis of that book is really bizarre to me about the LDS church to go from literally it's one of the small set of approved books for your missionaries to on a section of forgiveness. We're not even going to mention it, surely not quote it and not even use examples of LDS people that Kimball includes in that book. But we're going to use a Dutch reform, a Calvinist people. Corey Ten Boom is a Calvinist Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that Calvinism informs the book. If you, if you understand reform theology, right? Or Augustinian theology. Yeah. Right? Being given the love, right, to show people who hate you. I mean, that that's that comes from what we rep- are trying to represent, not from LDS presuppositions at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just, it's just kind of interesting. I, I think um, there's a lot I could emphasize on this, but obviously it's personal to me because of my grandmother. And it's also another evidence to me of how people, conservative and liberal or right and left, however you want to frame it, LDSism is not on the right. Like the only axis in which that makes sense is if you're talking about rules. Yeah. But I don't think rigor defines either group, right? Like who wants to regulate, I don't know, the environment more? That's more rules, right? But we would associate that with the left. So it just has no meaning if you just only look at the 
emphasis on rigor, moral rigor. Mm-hmm. And there is, if, if, if you are liked on the left, wait 20 years that you're going to be Satan eventually. Yeah. And I just think that happens over and over and over and over again. They need Brigham Young's authority, but they'll throw him under the bus as if he's the only one that taught, you know, uh, quote unquote, the revealed truth about black people mm-hmm. or, um, yes, they used to teach this. Now we're going to go away from that. Or even in my own lifetime, Ezra Taft Benson's emphasis on the constitution, Dallin Oaks will contradict it. Um, and people don't seem to notice or those that do are told to just get in line. And, uh, I mean, it's just, um, well, that was know, the recent conference talk, right? That, yeah. uh, the, the revelation of older prophets never usurps the revelation of newer prophets. <laughs> right. Yeah. How is that conservative? Ask the question, what are you conserving? Yep. Um, They don't even conserve their own stuff, Mm. let alone the broader tradition that they want to claim by self-identification. Which which side politically does that? I identify as Christian, so you have to respect that. Yeah. Well, what if you're not? (laughs) Well, my self-identification matters. Um, it's, It's just, there's a book called Inventing the Flat Earth that shows the history of the revisionism on Columbus. And I'm not trying to get bogged down in this, but this is just an example that comes to mind where the progressives put forward Columbus as someone sticking it to the church based on a lie they invented, by the way, to attack Christianity. And then now they're the ones to be hitting a statue. So it's like here you've put forward Kimball for decades as one of the preeminent prophets. You, you use him, even though he didn't say the doctrine was wrong, he reverses the policy but you want to frame him as this racial progressive and he becomes this example of the benefit of personal revelation. And he writes a book that you include in your missionary library. And my grandma goes around and gives, you know, firesides and talks talking about to people about how uh, you based on the book of Mormon and other things we're supposed to forgive using, you know, the spiritual power available to us in the atonement, whatever, just to now, literally cite someone of the opposite worldview like Corey Ten Boom to avoid it so you can get away from the parts of the miracle forgiveness that you don't want to teach anymore. Mm-hmm. Is it open and honest discussion? Is it that we think he was wrong here or here? Uh, no, it's always this subtle, don't talk about it, stop quoting it, move on, stop publishing it. It's always these kind of Underhanded. Manipulative, yeah. under the table things. Yeah. And it, uh, it, it I don't and know. That, that's where I think that, uh, creedal Christianity is so refreshing. Yes. Because we, we, uh, along with Paul, claim that we've renounced underhanded ways because we would have nothing known to anyone except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Yep. And, uh, and believe that that is the power of God unto salvation to all who would believe. There's nothing to hide here. Right. You know, there's nothing to be worried about or ashamed of. There's, there's no place where a Christian is discouraged to study and learn and, and discover. And, nope. uh, you know, there's a consistent teaching within the Bible that is held on to and has been held on to for centuries. Um, and uh, we don't, we, we never, we don't feel like that that's under threat and needs to be protected from uh, progressives and whatever stripe they may come. Right. You know? Right. When, when you say, what are you conserving? We have an answer. We have a set answer and we have a conditional answer, right? 
the scriptures and the creeds. Mm-hmm. And we don't, it's not just blind traditionalism. It's we hold those traditions up to the light of the word of God, yep. recognizing our own fallibility and sin. And so we judge those things, which provides the flexibility, but that we are inflexible in what we are trying to conserve. My answer, if the same question is given to a believing Mormon who, I mean, believes the King Follett discourse, believes something was restored, doesn't just get into this restoring narrative that can throw away everything that used to make Mormonism distinctive. What's the answer? Mm-hmm. And the only common denominator I can think of is the self. Yeah. And I just think this is not seen enough. Mormonism can function ultimately as a mirror. It, it is what they want it to be. Yeah. Which is why, you know, I can say this, be like, well, Joseph Smith taught this. And they'll be like, well, Nelson taught this a minute ago. Yep. But, but the, on the flip side, if you talk to someone who really believes Joseph Smith was a prophet, what he taught is revealed. Uh, you could say, well, Nelson taught this. So they'll be like, well, Joseph Smith taught this, and I prioritize it that way. They, see, yeah. the, the, the ambiguity is weaponized yeah. and, and by then, the different subgroups yeah. in the church. Well, and, and then it's... Well, it, it doesn't matter all that much anyways because I have personal, personal revelation. revelation. There's so. an escape valve everywhere. Yeah. Whereas if someone can show us where the Nicene Creed is wrong based on Scripture, yeah, we would admit it. Yep. Right? I mean, it's like we have something we're conserving. We have flexibility based on the theology of what we're preserving. We recognize we're fallen sinners, so we don't think that tr- we confess the fallibility of the church. Yeah. But we also confess the necess- necessity of the church. And Christ said, "I will build it, and yep. it will not. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Surely not. Right, our own errors, uh, you know, from within. Yeah. Um. So it it's there is. I guess my point is, it's not just a worldview. It's how you engage with others based on it. And I just think so much of Mormonism has this kind of two-tier sense to it where on the surface, if they're talking to certain people, there's this PR version. Right. But once you become a member, you get to learn what real Mormonism is. Yep. And then there's enough ambiguity between the leaders themselves and the members and between that depending on any situation, they can morph it into whatever they want it to be, not based on what it is, but on what they want you to hear that it is. Yeah. Feels like you're wrestling with a ghost. Yes. Let me just close this out here. Um, back in the in the scriptures that that we love and cling to. And uh, again, the consistent message in this uh, lesson was eternal life and how you gain eternal life by how well you forgive, how well you uh, just do the good works, you know, how, how well you, you uh, pick the good part, all that stuff. It's, it's all about us and what we're doing. Uh, let's just reflect afresh on the source of life himself. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mm. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world 
did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor nor of the nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.